Well, that's a pretty bold promise we just made to the Lord in song, isn't it? I think it's pretty easy to sing that out, but the ramifications of that are pretty significant in our lives. Wherever the Lord wants us to go, we'll go. Wherever the Lord wants us to say, we'll say. How many times have we been unwilling to do that? Where he wants us to serve, where he wants us to stay. Well, we have spent some of the first part of the summer studying a man's life who lived that way. Where God wanted him to go, he went. Where God wanted him to stay, he stayed. How God wanted him to serve, he served. Never stopped following the Lord. This morning I thought it would be important, if you've been following along in the series, to, to bring to some, some sort of conclusion to his, his life, the life of Joseph. Put a kind of wrap on what we've been talking about this summer. Sit back and sort of tip back your chair and wistfully look into the horizon and say, what are the reflections, what are the things that the meaningful things that we learned about Joseph as we reflect on his life? What are the concluding impressions that should impact our hearts and move our, our actions? That's what I want to do this morning with you. And from the horizontal plane, the, the title is How to Stay Hopeful When the Situation is Horrible. I think Joseph epitomizes lessons in that. And frankly, not only how to stay hopeful, but why? Why, as one beloved by the, by the living God, can we stay hopeful when our setting is hard or horrible? So I want to look at that. But I don't want to leave the book of beginnings without making sure that we, we get some vertical lessons as well, not just horizontal. What are the lessons about God? What do we learn about God? What can we take to the bank about our great God? How can we be hopeful? So... I hope we have a healthy dose of both this morning, horizontal living in light of vertical living with God. Would you pray with me, Father, as we now pause to to gaze into your word, gaze into your face, to gaze into your heart, Father, would you open it up to us? We are hungry, we are sitting before you, many in very hard situations. Many who've come through some really difficult times or are still in them or are facing them. Father, I pray that the ministry of God's Spirit through your word would be powerful to us. The situations are innumerable. They're as varied as the number of people who you've drawn to, to gather together this morning, Lord. They've come to worship you, to praise you, to demonstrate their great love for you, to give to you, and, know, and knowing full well they will receive. So, Father, we've come to receive now. We've come to open up our hearts and allow you to pour into us what you want, what you want to give us this day for this week and ongoing days. Strengthen our hearts, Lord, for the journey, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50? 
Genesis chapter 50, I'm going to actually begin in reading in Genesis 49, the last verse. When Jacob, Genesis 50, the last chapter in the first book. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people at 147 years young. Can you imagine? Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. And then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him. Taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Two days short of the mourning period for an emperor in Egypt. Can you imagine? Such respect God's man, Joseph, had engendered in the land of Egypt that his father was treated with the utmost of respect. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes... Speak to the Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. This was an impressive funeral cortege. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mezriem. So, Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abram had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And so we end the book of Genesis. We began in a living garden in Eden, and we end in a coffin in Egypt. Because of man's sin. Of all the accolades that could be have been permanently recorded about Joseph's life, as we leaf through the text of the New Testament, I think it would if we were making the list, we would probably have chosen things like the incredible integrity of Joseph as an employer even in settings that he didn't necessarily choose. Or, or maybe we would have talked about the uncompromising morality of Joseph, in, even when no one was looking, when the workplace was charged with sexual harassment. Or maybe his savvy management skills in the saving of millions of people's lives. Or maybe we would have recorded his unmatched forgiving heart in the face of heinous abuse. Or maybe we would have recorded his irrepressible hope in horrible settings. But none of those things were chosen by God as a permanent New Testament record of Joseph. The living God said, mark this down about Joseph in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. Joseph lived by faith. That was the hallmark of Joseph's life. That was the hallmark description and characteristic that that the living God said, mark this down about Joseph. Being sure of what he hoped for, and certain of what he did not see. That was what caught God's attention. That was what pleased the Lord. Trusting God with his whole life, regardless of what came his way. He was sure of what he didn't see. And the reason that that was what God chose to mark down is because faith gave fuel to everything else on his list. His integrity, his morality, his savvy management skills, his irrepressible hope, his unmatched forgiving heart, all of those things first grew from a heart that fully trusted God. Right faith is always the root of all other right living. Always. 
What you really believe is what shapes how you live. And you can tell what a person really believes by how they live. Because how you live will be completely shaped by what you really believe. Not by what you say you believe, but by what you really believe. And Joseph really believed in God. He really did. He really trusted him fully. And so as we wrap up the uh, reflections on, a, on an amazing life lived for God this morning, I just want to point out to you from this text three final priorities, takeaways. Right faith priorities, I would call them. Right faith priorities for hopeful living. Hopeful living in hard times. Anybody living through hard times? Anybody ever had any hard times in here? Am I preaching to the choir this morning? Are you expecting to have some hard times? Well, I think there's some really applicable kinds of reflections here this morning that should help us for hopeful living in hard times. And to find the first, we actually have to turn back a few chapters. I want to point out something to you in Genesis chapter 46. Now, the first is this. If you want to have a right faith priority for hopeful living in hard times, it really, really matters what you think about God. It really matters what you think about God. Is God random? Is he reactionary? Is he unpredictable? Is he unsearchable? Is he unknowable? Or is his providence shaped by his stated purposes and promises? Well, I want to turn your attention to um, actually Genesis 45. We're actually at the time when Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers, who he was, and he was sending them back to his father Jacob to tell his father that he was alive and to to bring them to Egypt to rescue them and to save them. And we pick up the story at verse 27 of Genesis 45. But when they told him everything, him meaning Jacob, that everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, Jacob, Israel, interchangeable names. I'm convinced my son Joseph is, al- is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now watch this. When Jacob heard that Joseph was alive and well in Egypt, He jumped in Joseph's minivan that he sent to him, gathered the whole family, piled them in, set the GPS to Egypt, and took off. And as he was on his way to Egypt, he drove by a church in Beersheba. And it dawned on him that he better stop and worship, and then it occurred to him, wait a second, I'm on my way to Egypt. I'm all excited about my son. I I can hardly contain myself, but I never, ever stop to consult with God. I never 
asked God about this journey. And so in his worship time, giving sacri- offering sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, acknowledging in so doing the family calling to the Lord, God speaks to Israel, notice verse 2, in a vision at night and said, Jacob, or better, Jacob, I think he slept very soundly because there are exclamation marks here. Jacob, here I am, he replied. I, listen to this now, I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. And I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now there's a lot here for us to take in about the living God. Jacob, in his worship time and in his, his gathering, his thoughts around the living God, is asking, is God in this? And why is he asking this in his heart? Because his, he, he recalls in the history of his people that Abraham was told by God, don't go to Egypt. And, Egypt, and, and Abraham went to Egypt seeking help from the Egyptians in a time of famine. And God spoke to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verse 2. Don't go to Egypt for help. And so ingrained in Jacob's heart is, wait a second, I'm in the minivan, GPS set for Egypt, and and we're not supposed to go to Egypt. And he's conflicted, what am I supposed to do? And he consults with God, what does God think about this? And God speaks to him. If you seek God... You will find him. When you gather on your knees in front of God and pray to him and call out to him, he'll speak to you. He'll answer you. He'll direct you. And so he's seeking to know, is God in this? And who is God? Does he tell us what he wants? Does he mean what he says? And so God initiates matters what you think about God. Make no mistake about it, God cares about you. God initiates his directives in your life if you are willing to listen and hear. And so he speaks to him. And make no mistake about it that God also blesses those who long to follow in his ways and seek him and worship him, who do what he wants them to do, when he wants them to do it, and where he wants them. God isn't the silent, ancient relic. He's not only the God of Abraham. He's not only the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. The man who is living in this moment. I am God. I'm your God. I'm the God of your fathers. And he promised Jacob that he would bless him 
if he went to Egypt. He says right there, for I will make you into a great nation there. That's the place of my blessing. That's where I want you to be. Go there. And not only is his sovereign dominion so extensive, but he says to Jacob, and I know who and when will close your eyes. I know the day you will die. And I know the hands that will be placed over your eyes that will pull your eyelids over your eyes. When it is a tough time, it matters when we think about God. And what I like about this is I notice in the discussion of names of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. God is the God of an individual. God chooses to work through individuals like you and like me, like Jacob, like Abraham, like Isaac. God God doesn't work through the powerful regime of Egypt, the, the great and mighty Babylon. He picks out most unlikely people who are willing to listen to him, who are interested in his blessings upon them. And then he takes and he uses them to bless in ways that are all out of proportion to their size and ability. That's the good news to to the individual person here who loves the Lord or to our church in general. God intends to bless us if we will listen to him, if, if we allow him to lead us, if we let God initiate if we, if we go to the place where God intends to bless, then God intends to bless us all out of proportion to, the, to our own size or our own ability or what we could think or even imagine. Because he's God. In God's hands, we are an instrument of God's blessing and only when we're in God's hands. And it takes faith, you know, to hope for what you do not have or what you can't at the moment see, but you've been promised. God says to Jacob, the most important words any of us ever want to hear, Jacob, I am going with you to Egypt. Remember what Moses said years later when he was told by God, go to the promised land? He said, listen, I want to know one thing. Are you going with us? Because if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Because you with us is what makes us different from all the other peoples in all the world. That's what makes us different. That's the only thing that really makes us different in this city is as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is with us and God goes with us. And when we look at a daunting project, a a gigantic-sized enterprise that is way beyond our abilities, the reason we proceed boldly, the reason we forge a path directly is because we know that the great God of heaven is with us and goes before us and promises to bless us 
where he tells us to be. It matters. It really matters what you think about God. But I see something secondly here, so that, by the way, your plans will be shaped by God's purposes. And by the way, it says here, then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. And they also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring did what God told him to do. They went to Egypt. Now secondly, I notice in this text that it really matters what you think about your present circumstances. Now listen to, listen to this and hear me. There's a question that you need to ask around all of your personal circumstances. Are they for personal pampering and prosperity or for God's purposes? It's one of the most important questions you can ever ask of any circumstance you are presently in. Is this present circumstance that I am in for my personal pampering and prosperity or for God's purposes? I think you know me well enough to know how I'm going to answer that question. But I want you to see from God's word how that question is to be answered. I want you to turn with me now to Genesis 50. And we'll finish out the morning there, camp there in Genesis 50. As we were reading it, we came to a place in the text where Joseph's brothers broke his heart again. Seventeen years had passed since the time that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and hugged them and reassured them and forgave them and has been looking after them. Seventeen years. And they thought that Joseph had merely overlooked their atrocities, had not forgotten about them, had certainly not forgiven them, and was just biding his time until he could get revenge upon them. And to make matters even worse, They wouldn't even go and talk to him personally. They sent this horrible message to them by another. Notice what it says in the text. So they sent word to Joseph, verse 16, saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Do Do you think Jacob left those instructions before he died? How many think Jacob left those instructions? How many don't think Jacob left those instructions? So I was thinking too. They resorted to their old habits of deceitful manipulation. And what strikes me as I reflect upon this, and I circled in my Bible The heading right above verse 15 in my Bible, it says, Joseph reassures his brothers. And I circled that, 
his brothers, just his brothers. And I drew a line up in the margin of my Bible and I wrote the raw material for the people of God. And I raced back to what I think about God all over again. What a gracious God we serve. These guys are a pain in the neck. These guys are a disaster. 17 years of being cared for, not just by Joseph, but being cared for by the gracious, magnanimous, forgiving, amazing God. And all they got out of it was, he's just biding his time, waiting to, waiting to jump all over us. I kind of thought as a preacher when I was looking at this, because sometimes you just get discouraged about preaching the same thing over and over again and having the response totally opposite to what God has been teaching. It's like, we just talked about the grace of God and how he loves you and cares for you and how you don't need to be anxious about anything but just pray about everything. Why are you dissolving like a puddle on the floor and shaking and freaking out? Why? When, um, and I'm speaking about his brothers now, not about you. When you don't understand the forgiving grace of God, and likely when you've never offered forgiveness to anyone, you misjudge even the kindest of motives. And so Joseph, when he heard their message, he dissolved in weeping. His heart was just broken. Anybody ever done that to you? You've given them the best. You have overlooked. You have forgiven. You have treated them so well. And they turn around and stab you in the back and say, you never cared for me. You never loved me. The only response is weeping. And it takes faith to hope when that kind of hurt comes your way. I want you to see something powerful about Joseph here. Joseph responds with two insights into the massive heart that God had fashioned in him that will take care of you your whole life. If you allow God to shape this in your heart, there won't be any setting that you can't get through with victory and joy if you Embrace these two things that Joseph had built into his heart by God. Joseph had moved past revenge long ago. 
That's what hurt him so badly. And here's the thing. Rather than be angry, Joseph was awestruck about God. Yes, he cried. And his brothers then come and throw themselves down before him and say, we are your slaves. Joseph, you're going to see, had rightly sized God and his exclusive dominion over all things and his amazing purposes. And so he was able to act righteously before God. And, And now he was rewarded with a retrospective reflection on the essence of who God is and the complexity of God's programming in ways that has helped God's people for generations to come. And it really grew out of Joseph's amazing understanding of the nature of God's purposes and plan. Joseph had come to the position long ago in his life that that why should I think that my convenience is more important than God's amazing and good purposes and plans. And so he was able to look his brothers in the eye and say to them in verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is the first and most important insight into the massive size of Joseph's heart. A humble Joseph will not take the role of God and punish the perpetrators who God had used in his plans. It takes a massive God-infused heart to do that. That's for God. Any sort of revenge or any sort of dealings with people, that's for God who has proven more than capable of managing humanity. And so he refused to play God and hold these people emotionally hostage. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing not to nurse grievances? Because that's for people who know nothing about the grace of our God. We are called in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, to be ambassadors of, you tell me, of what? Reconciliation. Don't be afraid to say it. What if I got the wrong verse? Reconciliation. We're called to be ambassadors, specialists, and point, appointed by the king of the universe to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Those who nurture or nurse grievances know nothing of the forgiveness of God. And Joseph knew everything about it. Forgiveness is a specialized grace that sets us apart. That God comes with us. That the living God is in us. And that the special forgiving grace that only God can give, he gives to us to be ambassadors of reconciliation wherever we are and to whomever's hurt us. It must be part of your born-again experience. It must be. It must be part of your born-again makeover. So... Joseph refused to play God 
And the second amazing thing that he had discovered in his life that is utterly powerful is what he says in verse 20. You intended to harm me. He's not whitewashing this thing. He's not trying to to minimize sin or the pain that sin causes or what sin really is. No, no. I get it. You guys really intended to hurt me. I'm not in the dark about that. But here's what I know. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, this is an insight that runs throughout the scriptures and finds one of its greatest expressions in Romans chapter 8, 28, 29. For we know that all things work for good to those who love God, who've been called according to his purposes. His purposes, not our pampering, not our prosperity. His purposes, his plans. This is what Joseph learned really early in the presentation of the theology of God. What an amazing man, truly. That God intended it. What's the it? God intended the pain that you inflicted on me by your hands for good. Now, this is what I said. You have to think about your own setting in the right way. Your own circumstances. You, you have to think right. And in, in thinking right, you, got, you have to think this way. That believers are never subject to an accident. Never outside of the care of God. All things are, are within his dominant control. He never requires sin. But sin is never a free rogue agent in our lives either. Evil is never good, but it's never the last word either. As James Boyce said in his commentary, nothing, now listen to this, nothing can be anything but good for God's people. Are you willing to believe that? Nothing can be anything but good for God's people. You intended it for harm, but God intends it for good. Now, you just think about that for a few moments. In whatever circumstance you're in, and no one is going to try to pretend to you that the circumstance that you're in, which may be very horrible, isn't horrible. No one's going to try to pretend that. Joseph never said that. You intended to hurt me. The circumstance you might be in may be very much intentionally attempting to hurt you and harm you. But the great news for God's people is, because remember, we're talking about hope in horrible settings. The great news for God's people is, God has not abandoned you. God has not taken his hands away from the circumstances. God is promising 
that he will take this horrible, hurting circumstance and cause good things to happen. I have countless times had people come in and talk to me and say, I do not understand for the life of me how God could have allowed me to be in such a horrible setting in my childhood. In fact, I'm having trouble, they often say, I'm having trouble in believing in God because I'm having trouble to believe that there is a God who would allow that and would stand back. And these are invariably, in fact, almost exclusively, people who have come to faith in Christ. And I don't have the answer to the whys and the wherefores and all of that. But the one thing I do know as they're standing before me or sitting before me is that they are presently following the Lord Jesus Christ. How in the world did they get there? Is it just possible that if God had have ignored them and their life was pampered and wonderful and prosperous, that they, their heart never would have turned to seek something better than this. Your present circumstances are not for your pampering or your prosperity, but they are for God's perfecting plans for your life and the life of the people he will impact around you. Finally, we'll draw this to a conclusion. It was time for Joseph to die. The last important faith reality is this. It really matters while you're living what you think about the end. Are you anxious and uncertain about your future? Or are, you, are your convictions about what God is going to do set? Look at what Joseph said. He said to his brothers as he was about to die, I'm about to die, but this I know. God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, Again, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin. Listen to the man of faith. Although Egypt was his home for 93 of his 110 years, can you imagine? Egypt never owned his heart. And regardless of how many years you live in this place called earth, to the faithful, this world will never own us. We are just pilgrims passing through. And Joseph was so sure that God would fulfill his promise to take them to the promised land, that he said, put me in a coffin, put my bones in a coffin, but don't bury me here in Egypt. 
Because someday, sometime, God is going to come to your aid and he's going to tell you to go to the land of promise and I want you to take my bones there. I want to be the place where God is going to bless us. So how about you? He made sure even his burial was a legacy to the ongoing reminder of God's promises. I like that on tombstones, you know. You walk around cemeteries. You know, I, I, I'm in cemeteries regularly. And I like to, I look at tombstones and I, I, I know something about somebody on that tombstone. You know, someone will have a, a baseball bat on their tombstone or something like, okay, great, baseball. How's that working for you now? But then I see people who have promises of God and they want to be buried with a symbol of what they really believe about the end. And I'm not here. I'm with the Lord. This world was never my home. I was just passing through. And now, I'm where I belong for all eternity. It matters, you know, in your living now that you think rightly about the end. So your convictions about final things will give form to your hope. This is what it really means to be free, beloved. This, this is what it really means to be a believer, to be a Christian, to leave all the writings of wrongs to God, to see God's providence in man's malice toward you, to repay evil with forgiveness, which moves to personal affection, even though those guys after 17 years still didn't get it, and broke his heart. And he cried. He said to them, don't be afraid. And he grabbed them and he embraced them and reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Not only have I forgiven you guys, but I love you guys. That's what it means to be Christian. To move past forgiveness to affection toward those who have hurt you. We're the only ones who can do that. Because only in the power of Christ can you do that. And it has to be part of your born-again makeover. It has to be. From Eden to a coffin. We have a symbol that gives us hope. It's not a coffin. It's not a tombstone. It's an empty tomb. The empty tomb of the living Christ who died for us, was buried, rose again, victorious over sin and death that we might live with Christ forever. That's our symbol. That's our lasting image. An empty tomb. So what does Hall of Fame faith really look like? The kind that is victorious in horrible settings.
Well, for me, out of my understanding of the reflections of this text, I believe that God's providence is shaped by his stated promises. Do you believe that? I also believe that my present circumstances are being shaped by God's purposes for his plans, for his glory. Do you believe that? And I believe that in the end, God will give his faithful what he has promised. Do you believe that? So often in horrible settings, we want to know all the whys and all the surrounding issues and all the matters. An unknown writer said this. Do they really matter, all the whys? Could all the answers take away the pain? Or all the reasons dry my eyes? No, I would weep again. I would weep again. I believe this, that when tough times comes, and they will, and they are, it matters that you think right about God. And it matters that you think right about your present circumstances. And it matters that you think right about the end. And in so doing, you will be people of great hope in horrible settings. To the glory of God, our Father.